This is the One Thing Podcast, where we teach you the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results. My name's Jeff Woods. I'm the vice president here at the One Thing team. I'm gonna share a quick story with you about an experience early on growing this company with Gary Keller and Jay Papazan. And we're sharing this with you because it absolutely highlights the need of the episode today. In my first 90 days, we launched a course called Time Blocking Mastery. It's a master course that shows you how to form power habits that stick through time blocking. If you're interested in learning more about that, you can go to theonething.com, that's the number one in the URL, and click on the training tab and learn more. After we had launched the product, it went so well. So many people signed up. We were getting amazing reviews. I had a meeting with Gary and Jay to discuss the launch. And Gary said something to me that really shocked me. He looked at me and suggested that the product may be broken. I was so confused because we had just launched this thing. So many of you signed up. You guys were giving us great feedback. This was a huge success in my mind. And Gary said something that I'll never forget. He said, you know you've created something that's world-class. If every person who signs up for it loves it and shares it. How many people who signed up did so because of a referral? The answer was zero at the time. This set us down a journey to figuring out how do we create something that absolutely helps you solve a real problem. And it does such a great job that you become a raving fan of it and you turn around and share it. At the core of this is how, when you look at your career, your business, How do you create products and services that absolutely hook people? At the core of this is a question of how do you create products that ultimately people form the habit of using? If you want to build an extraordinary business, if you want to really serve your customers at the highest level, the companies that do this best build habit-building products, mean their products get used by habit. Along our journey to figuring out how we could create world-class products, uh, we looked out and studied a lot of books and, and people. And one of the books that I read was a book called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. Today, we are having a conversation with the author on when you look at your organization, your business, how you can look at the products and services that you have and how you can turn them into habit-forming products so you can make an extraordinary impact. With that, let's get into this conversation with national bestseller, Nir Eyal. Eating healthy is an investment. It's an investment in yourself, but it also often requires an investment of your time. But good news is Factor has delicious ready-to-eat meals that are ever fresh and never frozen. They're chef-created, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With Factor, you can choose from a weekly menu of up to 35 options, including popular things like Calorie Smart or Keto Direction or Protein Plus or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover 60 more add-ons every week like breakfast on the go, lunch, snacks, beverages to help you stay fueled, feel good all day. And we know our listeners here at The One Thing are focused on health and health goals. That's why we choose to partner with Factor. And if you visit factormeals.com slash 150 and use code 150, you can get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Again, that's factormeals.com slash ONE50 and use code ONE50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. There's a quote in the one thing that people don't decide their futures. They decide their habits and their habits decide their futures. And we talk so much about helping people form the right habits that I love that you asked the question, what does it take to form habit building products? 
Mm-hmm, what, mm-hmm. what does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there, there's, you know, I came to this field having been in the advertising and gaming industry for many years. And I saw all sorts of products come and go. I got started back when, you know, we would say apps and it, that didn't mean phone apps, right? Today you say apps, everybody thinks you mean an iPhone app or, a, or an Android app. Uh, but those, the, the iPhone and the Android didn't exist when, when I got started. Apps meant something you played around with on Facebook. We used to have these apps where people were throwing sheep and things like that. And uh, that's around the era that I got into the industry. And we saw all these products kind of come and go, right? There would be these campaigns that would do really, really well that would change people's behavior on a massive scale. And then some didn't work at all. And then others would start out really great and then peter out. And so I wanted answers for what was the difference between the products that 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 lasted and could form these new habits and the ones that failed. Uh, I, I really admired, you know, if you want to get really good at something, I believe you have to learn from the best in the business. And so I started studying the, the companies that are really great at forming habits like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and WhatsApp and Slack and Snapchat so that I could learn, you know, what are their secrets? How do they use consumer psychology to build these products that are so sticky so that the hope is that all of us can use it, right? So that it's not just the gaming companies or the social networks that are using these techniques, but we can use the same exact design patterns, the same exact techniques that they use to help people learn a new skill or exercise more or or eat healthier or connect with their family more often. You know, there are so many technology companies out there. And, And when I say technology companies, every company today is a technology company, right? If you're not Working with technology, you, you you soon will, or you'll be put out of business by another company that's using technology. So, you know, how do we take these these companies that, by and large, suck, right? That are just awful. Most technology that we use out there is boring. It's hard to use. It's not intuitive. So, can we build our products in a way that emulates a lot of the the, the things that these big companies do to keep people hooked? Mm. And the answer is yes, we can. <laughs> so, well, walk us through that a little bit, because. You know, you mentioned this is an engagement type of thing. When I look at everything that we have going on inside our world, how do we begin to focus and figure out where we can be doing better in terms of making this a habit building product? The, the first step is realizing that these companies did not get lucky. I think for a very long time, people thought, oh, you know, these these people in Silicon Valley, they uh, they just happened to start this little website. And what do you know? It, it became something that 2 billion people use. Uh, that, it doesn't didn't work that way. You know, these folks in Silicon Valley understand what makes you click and what makes you tick better than you understand yourself. Mark, you know, a lot of people know that Mark Zuckerberg dropped out of Harvard. A lot of people know that he was a computer science major before he dropped out. What they didn't know is that he was also a psychology major as well. Reed Hoffman, same story. Uh, the people who started Instagram, right? Kevin Systrom was a symbolic systems major at Stanford, where I used to teach for many years. And again, symbolic systems is this intersection of computer science and psychology. So just making a product that people want to use isn't good enough. You've got to also figure out how to make the kind of product that people want to reuse and re-engage with. And so the idea here is that if you can do that, that's a huge competitive advantage. Uh, and, and, and not only that, from the business perspective, from the user perspective, you know, the way we change people's lives is by forming these habits with, with products and services that can help them live better. And so mm. that's really my aim. You know, I'm not, I didn't write this book for Facebook and Google and uh, Instagram and WhatsApp. They already know these techniques. W- what I wanted to do is to write the book for the rest of us. And so the first step is recognizing that this exists, that there is a psychology, a science to building the kind of products that have high engagement. And then the next step is to make sure that we are building in what's called a hook. 
A hook is an experience designed to connect the user's problem with your product with enough frequency to form a habit. That's the definition of a hook. Say it again. And Sure. So the definition of a hook is a, an experience designed to connect the user's problem with your product with enough frequency to form a habit. So we've got the problem, we've got the product, and then we've got frequency. Those are the three big words that we have to focus in on. And when it comes to the design of the, of the product, we have to put in these four fundamental steps. So every hook has four steps. It starts with a trigger to an action to a reward, typically a variable reward. We can talk about what that means in a minute. And then finally, an investment. And it's through successive cycles, through those four steps, this is how our preferences are formed. This is how our tastes are shaped and how these habits take hold. So I can give you a quick example, you know, with a product that a lot of people use, but we can substitute any habit-forming product in this example. But let's take, for example, Facebook. Facebook's been in the news a lot. A lot of people claim that it's it's maybe too habit-forming, too addictive. So what makes Facebook such a habit-forming product? Well, let's first start with the triggers. So everyone knows the external trigger in this case. An external trigger is something that tells you what to do next. It's a call to action. It's a ping, a ding, a ring, something that tells you what to do. In the case of Facebook, it would be a notification, right? You look at your phone, it says, hey, your friend just did such and such, check it out. That's the first phase of the hook, the the external trigger. Next comes the action phase. The action phase is defined as the simplest behavior done in anticipation of a reward. The simplest thing the user can do to get relief from their discomfort. And we'll talk about discomfort in a, in a minute. So the, the key principle behind the action phase of the hook is that it, it's up to you as the designer of the product or the service to make it as easy as possible for the user to do what it is they want to do. And that means removing as much friction, as much of what's in their way as possible, whether that's time, money, physical effort, cognitive load social deviance, anything that gives them friction to do what they want to do, that's your job is to remove as much friction as possible. This is a huge, huge lesson. I mean, if you look at the history of innovation, the reason that technological innovation exists, all technological innovation, is to build tools to shorten the distance between the recognition of our need and satiation of that need. And so the the more you can contract the time and space that it takes to finish a job, the more your customers will need what you do and the more likely they will to do what you want them to do. So that's the action phase of the hook. Then comes the variable reward phase. In the case of Facebook, a variable reward is after you've logged into the app, you start scrolling. That behavior of scrolling through the feed, that's the core habit that all the other Facebook habits are built upon. Now, a variable reward, the, the study of variable rewards dates back to the 1950s and 60s, back to the days of B.F. Skinner, the father of operant conditioning. He took these pigeons, he put them in a little box, and he gave them a disc to peck at. And every time they'd peck at the disc, they would receive a little reward, a little food pellet. So what Skinner found was that, that he could train his pigeons to peck at the disc whenever they were hungry, right? So peck at the disc, get a reward. That's called operant conditioning. But then he started running out of these food pellets one day, and he started giving out these food pellets just every once in a while. So sometime the pigeon would peck at the disc, the next time they wouldn't peck, they, they would receive a reward, the next time they would not receive a reward. And what Skinner observed was, is that the rate of response, the number of times the pigeons pecked at the disc, increased when the reward was given on a variable schedule of reinforcement. And so what we find is in all sorts of products that capture our attention, that engage us the most, we always find some element of variability, a bit of the unknown 
that keeps us checking. So whether that's in the news, right, what's new today, whether it's watching a sports match, right, who's going to win, who's going to score, whether it's romance, whether it's playing video games, gambling, and of course, social media, all of these products and services are engaging because they are variable. Variability is a big reason why we stay engaged. It's the engine of the hook. And then finally, and perhaps most importantly, is that all of these products, uh, all habit-forming products, look for some kind of investment from the user. So it's not good enough just to give people what they want. You also have to get them to invest in your product. And I'm not talking about investing in money. Investing with money is a form of investment, but that's not what I'm talking about, about these these companies that that are so habit-forming today, the products like Facebook and Twitter and WhatsApp and Slack and Snapchat. What they're getting you to do is to invest in the product with data, content, reputation, followers. These are all forms of investment that make the product better and better with use. And this is a revolution. This is a really big deal because the more you invest in the product, you are co-creating it. You are, by putting in data, content, accruing the following, reputation, all of these things make the product better and better and better with use. And this is a really big deal. If you think about it, everything in the physical world all the products and services until now, the more you use them, the more wear and tear, the less they are worth. They depreciate. But habit-forming products do the opposite. They appreciate with use. And so that's, that's the real key here and why interactive products are so interesting and so potentially valuable is that there's, you, you just can't build value the way you can with an online product because it's, you know, it's, it's a recent revolution. The product can get better and better the more we use it. And now finally, when we go through these four steps, if we externally trigger, then the action, then the reward, then the investment through successive cycles, eventually, we don't even need the external trigger at all. And this is the, this is the goal of every habit-forming product. Every habit-forming product wants to attach itself to an internal trigger. And it, we talked about external triggers earlier, these things in our environment that tell us what to do. But all habit-forming products attach eventually to an internal trigger. And internal triggers are always these uncomfortable emotional states so that when we're feeling lonely, we check Facebook. When we're uncertain, we Google. When we're bored, we check YouTube or stock prices or sports scores so that eventually you don't even need the external trigger at all. People use the product on their own. And Mm. that's when the habit has finally been formed. Mm. So I'm hearing everything you're saying, and then I'm putting myself in, in your shoes looking at everything that you do in your organization, the products or services that you offer and going, oh, snap, I got a lot of work to do. Uh, what's, the, what's the lead domino, Nir? So, you know, I started two companies and the, the, the worst place to be is when something isn't going right and you don't know what you don't know. So that's the worst place to be. One level up from that is when things aren't going right, but you know why it's not going right. And so if, if I can help entrepreneurs, if I can help people who are building products and services out there diagnose, ah, now I get it. Here's what's missing. I don't have an effective trigger. The action is too difficult. The reward isn't rewarding, or we're not asking for an investment. Now it becomes a diagnostic tool to say, okay, that's what we need to focus on. That's the step of the hook that we're deficient in. Got it. Well, I guess that, that, that leads me into the next question, which is we, we're always looking for that two-inch domino. That single lead domino that you can knock over, that if you knock it over consistently, makes everything else easier or unnecessary. How can somebody go about figuring out where to begin with this? 
So the, the the easiest step, and I'm not saying this just to sell more copies of my book, because frankly, you know, you can go look online and pirate it somewhere for free. I don't really care. But you know, I wrote the book hooked because as an entrepreneur, I was looking for a book that didn't exist. And so I decided to write it myself. And there are exercises in the back of the book that literally tell you it's a page and at the top it says, do this now. <laughs> so the book is meant to be, it's supposed to teach you the theory and then get you to apply it for each of the four steps of the hook. So you have to ask yourself these these fundamental questions of what's the external trigger that brings the user to the product? What's the internal trigger that you're going to attach to? Is the action simple enough and can it be made simpler? Is the reward fulfilling and it leaves the user wanting more? And then finally, what's the investment? What's the bit of work that's done to increase the likelihood of the user using the product in the future? Those are the five fundamental questions you've got to ask. Now, to, in order to be able to, to, you know, how you respond to them, how you think through those answers, that's where you're going to find your, your solutions. And sometimes, frankly, it is, it is a, a, a domino where, oh, that's the one thing we were missing. But, you know, the first step to fixing a problem is properly diagnosing it. Well, let's go through those again because people who follow the podcast know I'm big, big, big on questions. So go through those mm-hmm. questions again. Sure. So I'm just tracking the, the steps of the hook with the, inter- with, with the trigger phase. You've got the external trigger, the internal trigger. So what's the external trigger that prompts the user to action? The internal trigger. What's the internal trigger, that emotion, that negative, that, that uncomfortable emotion that you're going to attach to? So what is the thing that the user is going to feel right before they use your product for relief? Here's the thing. Every human behavior, you know, we used to think in the psychology community that behavior was driven through the pleasure principle, what, what Freud told us, that everything that humans do is for the, the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. Turns out that's actually not true. That neurologically speaking, it's all pain. It's all pain. Everything we do is to escape discomfort. And that includes every product you use. And so that's the fundamental job of everything that you're your buyer, your consumer uses is always to satiate some kind of pain, to always modulate their mood in some way. So you've got to be able to articulate it. What is it? Is it, you know, they're going to use my SaaS product because they sat down at their desk at work and they're stressed about their quota? Is it going to be that they're lonely? Is it going to be that because they're feeling bored? What is it that they're feeling that your product is going to satiate for them? That's the most important question you can ask. And then that the, the next step of the hook, the action phase, is your product simple enough to use? Has it removed all the friction to help people do what they need to get done? And can it be made simpler? And then the variable reward phase that we talked about earlier, yeah, uh, is the reward rewarding? Does it give people what they want? Does it scratch their psychological itch and yet leaves them wanting more? And then finally, that investment phase, what is the user putting into the product to make it better and better with use? Mm. Yeah. I can, I can kind of, I'm not sure if your head is exploding over there or or if you're... <laughs> I love good questions. Love good questions. <laughs> Talk a little bit about email because I I think this really, when I had come across the book, it was early on in my time building this business. So I still told myself the story that I needed to get to inbox zero. My email was always open at the time, Um, lots of multitasking. And then you talked about why email is a habit building product, why it was designed to be like a game. And the moment you dissected that, I went... Mm. Oh, it's like I gave myself permission to stop playing the game. Yeah, yeah. So this is this this touches on a big reason why I wrote this book and what I'm working on next. Actually, so the first reason I wrote the book is because as an entrepreneur myself, I know how hard it is to build the kind of products that people will actually want to use. 
So that was the first reason. The second reason is that, look, I saw how technology was changing my behavior in ways that I didn't always like. I mean, I, I'm as guilty as, as anyone of checking my email box when I really should be doing something else. And I wanted to figure out why. And you know, email is probably the mother of habit-forming products. I mean, it's a product that we, we use so much that even though nobody really likes it, we can't stop using it. It's become a personal habit for individuals. It's become a corporate habit for companies. You know, we, we, even though it's not very good, we can't stop, even though we don't really enjoy using it. And if you track email to the four steps of the hook, I mean, it's, it's a perfect hook. You've got the external trigger of the notifications, right? The little icon on your phone that tells you, hey, you got a new message. And you've got the internal trigger of uh, uncertainty, of, of stress in the workplace, of you know what, what's happening that I should be doing right now. And all you have to do to satisfy that internal trigger, that discomfort, that emotional unease is to just open your email client, right? Now that it's on the phone, it's with us all day long. We just open the icon and we start looking through those emails. And of course, when we open the email inbox, we're flooded with variable rewards. There's all this uncertainty. It's like a slot machine. Sometimes you open your email inbox and there's crap. It's a bunch of spam. The next time you open the, your email inbox, it's your boss that's saying, oh my God, there's this fire we got to put out right now. The next time it's from your you know, high school sweetheart you haven't heard from in 20 years. So there's a lot of variable reward associated with opening up your email inbox. And of course, that imprints a memory that causes us to want to engage with it again. And then the investment is every time you send someone a message, what you're doing when you send someone a message is you're loading the next trigger. So you're making it more likely that you will use email in the future because every time you send a message, you're investing in email because you'll soon get, presumably, a reply. And that reply comes coupled with another external trigger in the form of a notification, and we start the hook all over again. Now, one of the things I didn't hear you talk about there near is how it helps you accomplish your most important priorities and achieve extraordinary results. Yeah. Do you want me to, to lie about that? Or? No, no. I just it, it's, it's interesting because we have this habit of checking email. We live in our inbox and yet yeah. it's everyone else's priorities and not ours. Right. Right. I mean, this is, I don't think that technologies are good or evil. Uh, that, that's just, you know, if you want stories of good and evil, go watch Star Wars or something, because that's not reality. The reality is that it's a tool like every other tool, right? I can use a hammer to build a home. I can use a hammer to bash someone's head in. It's how you use those tools. So email is amazing in that, you know, it's really good at doing what it's designed to do, which is to deliver messages, communication quickly and cheaply. But that also comes at a potential cost because when you make something very easy to do, people do more of it. You know, most people have not figured out the proper practices around how to manage email in such a way that it doesn't control their lives. They're, you know, they're, they're, they spend so much time reacting to communication in general. Not, you know, they're, they're, we're flooded now with, with communication and we, we ha that has come at the expense of concentration. And this is what I alluded to earlier about what my next book is about. My next book is called Indistractable. And becoming indistractable is all about how do we do the things we say we're going to do. That's really what being indistractable means. It's how do I do the things that I myself know I need to do, right? And so, you know, in this world of, of, of so much potential distraction, which I love, I don't want to go back to the time before email and before Facebook and before the iPhone. These are great tools. I'd rather live in a world with them than without them. But we also haven't had the time to develop the, the, the rituals, the routines, the practices around how to use this stuff in a way that doesn't degrade our lifestyles.
in a world where people have unconsciously formed habits of living in their inbox, of accepting meeting requests, of saying yes every time someone asks if you've got a minute, where most people know what it feels like to be really busy and yet wonder if they even got anything done. How do we actually start doing our most important work? Here's how we need to think about it. Uh, First of all, we need to cut ourselves some slack and realize that this is not a new problem. That Socrates and Aristotle talked about this term that they coined called acrasia. We don't really use that word that much anymore, but I think it's making a comeback. Acrasia is defined as our tendency to do things against our better judgment. 2,500 years ago, these Greek philosophers noticed that people do things they didn't really want to do. And it's the same exact acrasia that gets us to check email when we really need to be concentrating on that big project. Check Facebook when we really want to be with our friends or family. Watch sports on TV when we really wanted to read a book that could help expand our mind. So that's when acrasia rears its ugly head. And so to tackle acrasia, you know, the medium has changed, the devices have changed, but the problem is exactly the same. So we need to start once again in the brain. And a way to think about this problem is to realize that, you know, your actions can take one of two directions. And this is kind of the base. I'm giving you a sneak peek into my book, which will be available in early 2019. But the way we need to look at our actions is that that our actions can take one of two paths. They can either take the path of traction. Traction is when we do things we want to do. And then the opposite of traction is distraction. So doing the things that are against our better action, a better judgment, these are things that are influenced by acrasia. That's distraction. So, but this isn't the way most people think about distraction. Most people think about distraction, they'll say something like, you know, I I meant to work on a project and then my phone rang and I got distracted. But what we're doing is conflating the external trigger in this case, the phone ringing with what we did in response to that trigger to influence our actions. So you can think about a circle with your actions in the middle, and then they can go to the right, which is traction, or to the left, which is distraction. And then you've got two arrows pointing in the top or the bottom that influence our actions to go to the left or the right. So at the bottom, you can think of influencing our actions through external triggers, these pings, these dings, these rings, these notifications that can make us go one way or the other. They can lead towards traction if it's something we want to do or distraction if it's something we didn't want to do. But the external triggers are only part of the problem. In fact, most distraction, what I've learned in my five years of research on this topic is that most distraction starts from within. It's these internal triggers that we talked about earlier. These internal triggers, this is what drives us much more frequently throughout our day towards traction or distraction. These uncomfortable emotions that we seek to escape. It's called the homeostatic response. And it it works physically and psychologically. So for example, if you're cold, you put on a jacket. And then you walk indoors, you're hot again, you take it off. If you're hungry, you feel hunger pains and you eat. If you're full, you stop eating. So those are psychological, uh, that's an example of how psychological states drive our actions. The same holds true for our psychological states, right? We talked about earlier how if you're feeling lonely, you might check Facebook. If you're uncertain, you Google. If you're bored, you check stock prices or sports scores or the news. So managing distraction is not just about you know, removing the external triggers or you know, uh, throwing away your phone or you know, going on some meditation retreat. It has to start with figuring out what's the source of these internal triggers. Why are you bored? Why can't you stand to be five minutes with your family? Why, can't, why is it so hard to work on that project at work that you hate right now? You know, what's the source of these internal triggers that are driving you 
to look for and escape with your device. That mm. has to be the source. And nobody likes to talk about it because what it means is, is that there's this icky, sticky, ugly truth that the problem at the end of the day is with us. It's so much easier to blame the tech companies, those big, bad tech companies for making products that we want to use all the time than it is to look within. But I promise you, if you got rid of Facebook, if you got rid of your iPhone, if you got rid of your computer, but you haven't taken care of these internal triggers that drive you to look for escape, guess what? You'll find something else. You will always find something else. Do you think that tomorrow if Facebook shut down that people would start reading Chaucer? No, they'd find other distractions. They'd go back to watching soap operas or reading trashy magazines or whatever else because they're looking for distraction because they haven't taken care of those internal triggers. So that has to be the source. I'm hearing everything you just said there. I'm going, okay, yeah, what what are all those triggers that are causing me to do this? Tactically, what's one thing we can start doing that would make it easier or unnecessary to stay focused on the things that matter most? Right. So if we're just talking about this internal, how do we deal with internal triggers? There's a lot we can do. And a lot of this comes from a, a research into addictions. So, so there's a lot that we can do in terms of first recognizing what prompts us to distraction, these internal triggers. And there's one technique that I really like is what psychologists call surfing the urge. So the, the, if we're going to manage distraction, we've got to manage these internal triggers. So the first step is to call what it is uh, by its name, by naming those internal triggers. So sometimes, for example, you know, writing is hard work for me. It doesn't come easily. And it's filled with internal triggers, right? It's boring. It's frustrating. It's oftentimes very difficult. So what, what used to happen and still does from time to time is that I'll, out of habit, start Googling something. Or let me just check email for a second. Or what was that one thing that I wanted to do? And then I get off track. I get distracted. So I started keeping track of those internal triggers. So I'll literally write down the time, 1032, feeling bored. And just naming that is amazing, right? Just giving it a name starts to give us power over it. Then what we want to do is to to surf the urge, what I, I mentioned earlier, which is this technique that we just feel that sensation. You know, what most of us do instinctively without even thinking about it is that we try and stuff down that emotion, you know, or we blame ourselves, oh, stop feeling bored right now or stop feeling distracted. When what we really want to do is to just take a few minutes and feel that sensation. And we want to talk to ourselves, not like a bully, which is how a lot of people talk to themselves. They berate themselves whenever they get potentially distracted, but instead talk to us like a, ourselves, like a third party, like a friend. And just you know, talk to ourselves like, oh, you know, there's my hand going for my phone. You know, I'm feeling tension in my chest right now. You know, talking to ourselves like a, like a third party might. And it turns out that just by giving it a, a few minutes to surf that urge, I call it. You know, I've I've heard it called the 10 minute rule, where just giving myself 10 minutes to surf the urge, and then after the 10 minutes, if I still want to Google something or check email or whatever, I can. But giving myself just that little bit of space can do a lot to regain control. And then you realize, you know what? It's just discomfort. It's just my mind getting stronger, my skills expanding. And oftentimes that hurts. But this will pass if I just give it a few minutes. So that's an incredibly powerful technique, noticing and surfing the urge. Let's do this near. Let's turn the tables and actually role play what this will look like. Sure. Okay. So what's a distraction that you might struggle with? It used to be email. That's no longer the case. You know what? The distraction I struggle with is actually myself. I will be in a time block and I will suddenly need social interaction 
And so mm. I'll go out and start talking to other people. Okay, perfect. Even though you planned for that time block to do something else. Yes. Okay, perfect. So here's what we want to do. So you've already taken a very big step in that you have time blocked. That's huge, right? The vast majority of people don't take the time to make a calendar to decide what they want to do. And, and I think we both are believers in this idea that if you don't plan out your day, someone else will. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I, I like to say that you can't call something a distraction unless you know what it's distracting you from. So just the fact <laughs> that you've, that, you know, that, this is the thing I hear this all the time, right? I, I, people say, oh my God, the world is so distracting. And, you know, Donald Trump said this and Facebook is this, and I can't get any work done and email all the time. And I say, well, show me your calendar. Right. Let, let me have your phone and, and open your calendar app. Let me see it. And they show it to me and it's pristine blank white. Right? Like there's nothing on their calendar. They just think that they're going to get work done magically throughout their day. But, you know, you have to time block. It's a critical, critical component. So that's that you know, has to be a, a critical step. Then what I would recommend is that once you know what it is you wanted to do, let's say you want to do some writing and then all of a sudden you feel this urge to stop writing and go talk to a friend or go go do something. Is it talking to a friend? Is that is that what it tends to be? Yes. Okay. So I would stop right there. And 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 this is this is oftentimes the part that takes the most practice is attuning yourself to feel the internal trigger and to give it a name. So you might keep a little pad of paper or post a note on your desk, mark the time, and write down feeling lonely, looking uh, seeking connection. Jay right? calls Jay calls it vitamin G. It's when Jeff needs a hug. Jeff needs a hug. Okay, perfect. Perfect. That's that's great. And then I would say, you know, look at your watch and give yourself 10 minutes to just feel that. And what here's what's going to happen. You're going to surf the urge. You're going to feel it. You're going to get curious about it. You're going to say, "Huh, that's interesting. My, you know, I, I feel a little tension in my in my chest right now. My my ear hurts a little bit or uh, I have this itch here." You know, just get comfortable with giving yourself just a few minutes to feel whatever it is that's triggering you. Mm-hmm. And what you will notice and what you will train your brain to notice is that you will begin to believe that these feelings do not need to be acted upon. That's that's the, the, the closer here is that you will learn over time, huh, you know what? Nothing bad happened when I didn't act on that impulse. That's what surfing the urge is all about. It's about training yourself to have more agency and control over something that felt out of control. I, I feel lonely. I got to go talk to somebody. No, you don't. You're not going to die. And so by doing it, by practicing this, this technique, your brain learns to not go into this catastrophe mode of having to get up and go take care of the problem. You learn to get comfortable with the discomfort. Okay? So, then, yep. so that's, that's how you'll grow that skill. The other, then there's other things you can do, very practical things. Like, for example, we talked about external triggers. You know, During that time when you have time blocked a, per, a particular activity, Obviously, right? Turn off all the external triggers. It sounds obvious to, to us, but two thirds of people who own a smartphone never adjust their notification settings. That's craziness. How dare we say that the world is so distracting and shake our fists at Google Face and Facebook when we haven't changed our notification settings? It takes five minutes to turn those notifications off. Uh, on our phones and our on our computers, anywhere that we're working, we've got to turn those external triggers off by asking ourselves this question. It's not that external triggers are always bad. It's that we have to only allow the external triggers that serve us. We have to ask ourselves this question. Is this external trigger serving me? Is it leading to traction or is it leading to distraction? If it's leading to distraction, we got to turn it off. And then finally, there's one more technique that's a, a fail-safe technique. It's not the first thing we use. It's the last thing we use. When we've tried everything else and we need even more help, 
And this, this is called making a pack. And this has been shown time and time again to be a very effective technique, but it does have one pitfall I'll talk about in a minute. Basically, this comes from the story of Ulysses in the Odyssey, where you know the story where he sails past the sirens? No, uh, I, I remember it at one point in time, but go through it. Okay, so so Ulysses, and this is the story of the Odyssey written 2,500 years ago by Homer. Ulysses has to sail his ship past the island of the sirens. The sirens are these mythical creatures that sing this beautiful song that attracts sailors to the shores where they crash their ships and die. And then the sirens, I think, eat them or something. So Ulysses knows this, and he wants to make sure that he doesn't do something he's going to be tempted to do that he doesn't want to do. So he wants to hear the siren song, but he doesn't want to crash his ship. So he tells his men, he tells his crew to bind his hands to the mast of the ship. And he tells them, no matter what I do, no matter what I say, don't let me go. He enters into this pact with them. And it works. The ship sails right past the island. And he, he, he says, no, let me go. I want to hear that. I want to go to the sirens. But they don't let him go. And so we can use the same exact lesson in our lives today to fight distraction. And the good news is, is that there's all sorts of free tools to help us do this. For, for example, every day when I write, I use an app called Forest on my cell phone that displays this little picture of a, of a seedling that the more time I spend in focused work, the, the more the seedling grows into a tree. So I say, oh. okay, I want 45 minutes of focused work. If I touch my phone, the tree dies. Now, it's a stupid little virtual tree. It means nothing, but it's enough to remind me, oh, wait a minute, I just made a pact with myself to not get distracted. Another app that I use every day is called TimeGuard, which doesn't let me access apps and websites that I don't want to see except for the time in my day when I have scheduled it. So for example, my social media time is from 6.30 to 8.30 in the evening. That's when I let myself go on Facebook and YouTube or whatever. So I turn something that used to be a distraction into an act of traction by scheduling the time for it. But any other time of the day, this, act, this app blocks access to it. I've made a pact with myself. Another website that I use a lot that I, I like so much that I actually invested in the company is called focusmate.com. So focusmate is a tool that you use. You, you schedule time with another person somewhere in the world. You never know where. And in that period of time, so you say, okay, 8 a.m., we're going to meet. And you see their little, you know, you log into the site, you see their little video feed and you start working and they expect you to be there. And if you don't show up, they're going to give you a bad review. So it's this pack that we're making with another person to keep us on track. So we can use these packs uh, in our life. The one thing that the downside that I mentioned earlier is that many times uh, this is not the first thing we want to do, because many times when people fail, when they fall off the wagon, they have a tough time getting back on track. So this is something we want to do as a last resort. And then, of course, we have to remember to give ourselves plenty of self-compassion, that people who are more self-compassionate, turns out, are much more likely to achieve their goals. So even when we fail, we have to talk to ourselves like a friend would and not berate ourselves when we fail. Ah, I love that. So that was you three resources, Forest, Time Guard, and Focus Mate. Right. But the, remember, those are only packs. That's what we do last. First, we manage external triggers. Second, we make sure that we make time for traction. We schedule our day. Third, we remove the external triggers that don't serve us. And then only fourth, we, we enter into these packs to block out distraction. I love that you brought it up because my mind got really focused on that shiny object that is the new app. And that's the Band-Aid without ever solving the underlying issue. Right, right. And that, that, that's exactly it. But the, the, and here's the most important thing, by the way. We have got to stop blaming the technology. Okay, Studies have found 
that the number one determinant of someone who achieves their goals is their belief in their own power to do so. <laughs> so by people believing that Facebook is addictive and that Netflix is addictive and that these technologies are hijacking our brains and that they're irresistible, you are making it so. You are teaching yourself that you have no power. And that's not true and it's self-defeating. So the number one thing I want to make sure that everybody who hears me today realizes is that you have the power. We can do this. You just have to believe that it's so. If you give these companies the power and the credit that they're building these things that hijack your brain, you've already lost. Of course they're going they're going to be able to have this undue influence over you because you believe it's the case. So this is not something that we can't do. We can all become indistractable. I love that. Near, where can people learn more about you? Absolutely. Yeah. So my website is nearandfar.com. Near is spelled like my first name, N-I-R. So nearandfar.com. See, so I've got my book on Amazon, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. And then uh, early next year, my uh, my next book, Indistractable, will, will be on shelves as well. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate the conversation. My pleasure. This was fun. Well, there you have it, my conversation with Nir Eyal, author of the national bestseller, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. If you have not yet read this book, you can pick it up anywhere books are sold. And if you are an Audible fan, go to audible.com slash one thing. That's audible.com slash one thing. Or you can text one thing to the number 500-500. If you're new to Audible, you will get a free credit with a 30-day trial, so you can get hooked for free. And if you're already an Audible customer, you can absolutely get your copy there. What I loved about this conversation is looking at the experience to turn your product into a habit-forming product. And it's the four steps, the triggers, the actions, the rewards, and the investments. So out of all of those things that we talked about in this conversation, what's the one that you can focus on first, that you can prove to yourself that you can get a win in that area first. For us, I'll tell you, we're gonna be focusing on triggers. How do we get you to, for example, check your 411 before you check your email? Because if you check your 411, the document whose sole purpose is to give you clarity on your priorities and you see your priorities first before you check your email and see everybody else's, which you're more likely to take action on. What would the answer be for you? We hope that you enjoyed this episode. If you like it, please consider sharing this with someone who you think needs to hear it. And if you are not yet subscribed to the show, go ahead and click the subscribe button so all future episodes will automatically be downloaded to your device. Thanks again for listening to the One Thing Podcast and we look forward to being with you in the next episode.